You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is titled, The Ghost of Guam. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about chewing gum. And most people know that Wrigley's is the biggest producer of chewing gum in the world. So my question is very simple. What was the name of the first chewing gum brand ever sold by Wrigley's? And your choices are as follows. Is it one, Kiss Me, that's K-I-S-M-E, two, Lotta, three, Meadow Mint, four, Vassar, uh, or five, Yucatan. Oh, and by the way, these are all real brands. They all once did exist. Again, what was the name of the first chewing gum brand ever sold by Wrigley's? Was it one, Kiss Me, two, Lada, three, Meadow Mint, four, Vassar, or five, Yucatan? And I'll let you chew on this question for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Ghost of Guam. And today's story begins on Monday, December 8th of 1941. This is less than 24 hours after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and dragged the United States into World War II. This was the day that the Japanese took control of the tiny Pacific island of Guam. Now just in case your geography is a bit rusty, I know mine is, Let me just say that Guam is a fairly isolated island. There really isn't much around it. That is south of Japan, east of the Philippines, and north of Australia. It was the only island in this region that the United States occupied at the time, and as a result, the Japanese strategically wanted it. The Japanese invaded Guam at 3 a.m. in the morning to virtually no opposition at all. And that's because the island was basically unfortified at the time. You see, there were 155 U.S. Marines and 400 Navy personnel stationed there. That's it. And most of these men, believe it or not, were untrained for combat. So that left any member of the U.S. military with just two choices. A, you could surrender to the Japanese and, of course, risk sitting the rest of the war out in a prison camp. Or B, you could run for the hills and, you know, try to avoid capture. So which one would you choose? As you probably guessed, most of these men took option A. They surrendered. But some did try to run, but most were quickly captured or killed. 
but six men managed to escape and they did their very, very best to avoid capture. One of these men was a man named George Ray Tweed. He was a radio equipment repairman in the Navy's communication office. Now, he was married with children, but his family had been previously evacuated from the island due to the impending war. Now, George Tweed had been a military man for the past 18 years, and he knew that to leave without permission from a commander was a definite no-no. He needed permission from headquarters, and he dodged machine gun fire to get to the palace of the governor. Upon arrival, Tweed was told by a commander that they were all planning to surrender to the Japanese, but it was his decision to join them or to flee. Obviously, as I mentioned, he opted to flee, and he figured that the Americans would retake the island within four to six weeks. So Tweed quickly ran back to his house and he filled a pillowcase with necessary provisions. You know, he just kind of grabbed anything he could very quickly. And along with another Navy man named Al Tyson and a native Chamorro named Guevara, they jumped into a 1926 REO and they floored it. Now, I'd like to say this is an REO speed wagon. You know, it may, must be some joke there, but unfortunately it was a different model. Now their first stop was Guevara's ranch where Guevara jumped out. Then the two military men drove another 10 miles, which is about 16 kilometers, to a dirt road. They went up it for a bit of, you know, about a half a mile or so, and they ditched the car in the brush. After doing this, both ran to hide in the bush and were immediately overwhelmed by the island's lemon china plants. Now, these are chest-high plants with sharp thorns about a half an inch in length. That's about a centimeter, slightly over a centimeter. All I can think is, ouch, ouch, ouch. They did eventually find a flat spot to get some rest, but in their desperate rush to save their behinds from enemy fire, they forgot the most essential ingredient to human life. They forgot water. Now, one of the first rules of survival would be to immediately find a source of water. But it turns out that Guam has a scarcity of streams and surface water, so they couldn't find any. Luckily, an old man named Francisco spotted them and he invited the two men into his home. There they were provided with food, water, and a place to sleep. But they had hardly stretched out when they heard the rumble of approaching Japanese army vehicles and they knew they had to get out of there. So Francisco quickly led them to the bush, but he didn't forget about them. At sunup, he returned and moved them to a safer spot. That was about a half a mile or eight-tenths of a kilometer from his home, where he continued to provide them with food and water. Now, his life was certainly at risk, but this was common among the people of Guam. Nearly all of them supported the United States, and they had a hatred for the Japanese occupation of their island. While in hiding, the Japanese had recovered a list of military personnel that were stationed on the island, and they had accounted for all but six of the men, those were the six that took to the hills. So they offered a reward of 10 yen for the other five, and 50 yen for George Tweed. Now the high price on Tweed's head was due to his ability to repair radios. You see, the Japanese had destroyed or confiscated all of the radios on the island but they feared that Tweed could get his hands on one of these radios, and of course, using his skills, he could repair it and get back in touch with the United States and let them know what's going on. Japanese certainly did not want this to happen. The Japanese soldiers rounded up the citizens of Guam and ordered them to assist in the hunting of the six Americans. 
They went district by district in groups of two to four hundred men, and they would sweep through the bushes in an effort to force them out of hiding. After about a week on the run, it was clear that the area that Tweed and Tyson had been hiding in was the next on the list of those to be searched. So there they were, back on the run again. But this time, the price on their heads had gone up significantly. Each American was now worth 100 yen, except for Tweed, who was now worth 1,000 yen. Their next stop was an excavated dirt shelter that a man named Jesus, or Sus Ketugua, had dug into a hillside. Now, he did intend this for his family to use during the Japanese invasion, but ultimately decided not to. And there was another man named Juan Cruz who provided a beat-up radio, which Tweed was able to get working. But by early February, the Japanese had closed in, and they were on the move again. So Juan Cruz led them to the other four Americans, where they were hiding, and now all six were in one spot. But once again, the Japanese encroached on their hideout, and they decided to split up. They felt it was safer to do this than to stay in one large group. Tweed and Al Tyson decided to stick together, but it wasn't for long. That's because they learned that a man named Manuel Aguan, he was the guy that was hiding the other four men, he was arrested by the Japanese as a suspect in helping the Americans avoid capture. They beat him daily in an attempt to get him to spill the beans, but he didn't break. So at this point, Tweed and Tyson had different ideas as to what to do, and they decided to separate. In March, after about three months on the run, Juan Cruz, that's the guy who got him the radio, his brother Manuel found George Tweed what seemed like the perfect hiding spot. It was considered a cave, but it was really just a giant rock that was leaning up against a hill. Even so, it was quite roomy inside. Another man provided George with a generator, which he used to operate an electric light, and someone else provided him with another stolen radio. Now, to say he was hiding out was a bit of a misnomer, because it seemed like just about everybody in the area knew where he was. Tweed was able to pick up a radio station from the United States. Remember, this is AM radio, which travels a great distance. And he started to publish an underground newspaper that he called the Guam Eagle. Five copies were printed each day. And now you're probably wondering, why five copies? And it's very simple. That's because the newspaper was produced on a typewriter with carbon paper between the sheets of paper. The sixth copy was just not legible. He continued to produce the Guam Eagle for about four months. In exchange for the paper, the islanders provided him with local intelligence and supplies in return. And once again, he received word that the Japanese soldiers were getting close. He left his cave on May 24th of 1942. Keep in mind that he went to hiding on December 8th of 1941. Now, I don't want to go through every place that he went after this. It's a pretty long list, and I think it would bore you. But at one point, he learned that three of the Americans had been caught on September 12th of 1942. The Japanese soldiers had the men dig their own graves and then decapitated them. Ultimately, he ended up in his final hideout. A man named Antonio Artero lived in the northern part of the island, and he led Tweed to a place that he knew no one would ever find him. It was about one and a half miles or 2.4 kilometers from the road, at which point one had to scale a cliff, then cross over 150 feet or 45 meters of rough lava rock, 
and then up a 25-foot or 7.5-meter nearly vertical cliff to a crevice in the rock. The best part was that it had a clear view out over the ocean, which was about 300 feet or 90 meters below. His new home had nearly vertical walls on both sides that stood about 10 feet or 3 meters high. It was about 6 feet or 1.8 meters wide, and it extended about 25 feet or 7.5 meters back into the rock. The only problem was that it lacked a roof, and that was something that Antonio solved by carrying in pieces of corrugated roofing. Now, to be honest, I just can't imagine how he carried that, the roofing, and all of those other supplies in. He soon learned that he was now the last man standing. The remaining two Americans had been executed by the Japanese. They surrounded the chicken coop that the two men had been sleeping in and shot one of the men six times. Al Tyson stepped out with both his hands high in the air, of course in an attempt to surrender, but they shot him in the head at close range. Even though the danger to helping the Americans had become increasingly dangerous, Antonio continued to help Tweed. Excluding his wife, Antonio told no one that he was hiding the American. And since the Japanese had closed all the churches on the island, Antonio used that day, Sunday, to bring fresh supplies to Tweed. Tweed promised that he would repay Antonio in some way if he was rescued, but Antonio refused the offer. One day during a casual conversation, Tweed asked Antonio if he could have all the money in the world, what would he want? He replied, quote, a new four-door Chevrolet sedan. But it seemed that Tweed wasn't leaving anytime soon. Day after day, month after month, he lived in that big crack in the rock that he called home. Everything changed on June 11th of 1944. As he looked out from that precipice, he suddenly saw American planes flying over the island. It was just a pre-invasion flyover, but for the first time in a long while, George Tweed actually began to think that he could be going home soon. That day would come about one month later. On July 10th, he noticed that the U.S. ships were much closer than they had been in the past. He knew that he had to try and get their attention somehow, so he ran to the top of a cliff and he took out a small pocket mirror. He used it to flash the sun onto the bridge of the leading ship. Tweed then picked up a pair of semaphore flags that he had made from large pieces of gauze and he attempted to send the ship a message. Now, I don't know about you, but I have zero knowledge of the semaphore code, not a zip zilch. But luckily, George Tweed had learned it early in his Navy career, but he couldn't remember all the letter configurations. But he knew that he had to do his best. This was his life. He figured that if he even messed up an occasional letter, they could still decipher the visual messages that he was spelling out. So his first message was, quote, please answer by searchlight. And they did, with a simple K being flashed back, which apparently means go ahead. Now, my next message would have been, help, help, help. But instead, Tweed signaled back, quote, the Japs have a battery of coast guns mounted at Adaloo Point. The Japs kill every American who falls into their hands. This was followed by, can you take me aboard? Within five minutes, he saw a boat lowered into the water to come get him. But there was one big problem. He was perched high up on that cliff, and he couldn't just walk down to the shoreline. 
So he signaled back one final message, quote, please wait for me. It will take me half an hour to get down to the water. When he did, the rescuers refused to get that close to the shore. They were afraid that it may have been a trap, so they made Tweed strip off all of his clothes and swim out to the rescue boat. They pulled him aboard, and when they realized it was safe, they went back to shore and grabbed his clothing and the records that he had kept of his two years and seven months in hiding. Can you imagine? Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Upon reaching the ship, he was provided with a good meal and then he was able to shower, shave, and obtain a new uniform. When he went to throw his ragged, smelly clothes overboard, and believe me, they really, really stank, he was stopped by about a dozen men who wanted to take pieces home as souvenirs. The admiral of the ship promoted him from radio man first class to chief radio man, and best of all, he was given about $6,000 in back pay. Nine days after he returned home to the States, he filed for divorce from his wife, which was granted on August 17th of 1944. It turns out that they had already separated before his capture, so this simply finalized their decision. He did return to Guam after the United States recaptured the island. In a strange twist of fate, some of the Japanese soldiers took to the hills and tried to avoid being captured, just like George Tweed had done. Now the hunters have become the hunted. I should point out that not all the people were happy with George Tweed's return, since they felt that his refusal to surrender resulted in the torture and death of others. In particular, Father Jesus Duenas, one of the three Chamorro priests who remained on the island after the Japanese invasion, he was publicly tortured and killed for supposedly helping to hide George Tweed. In 1946, after the war ended, Tweed returned once again to the island. This time, it was with one brand new four-door Chevrolet sedan to be delivered to Antonio Artero. But he faced a number of protesters carrying signs that said things like, Father Duenas died for a good cause, one Chevrolet. And the path to patriotism leads but to a Chevrolet. As for the rest of his life, George Tweed remarried on July 2nd of 1945 to a 29-year-old War Department employee named Dolores Kramer. He did return to active duty, but he was forced out in 1950 due to spinal arthritis. Residing in Grants Pass, Oregon, he initially ran a bowling alley, but ultimately used his electronics expertise to operate a TV and radio repair shop. Two years later, in April of 1952, he made the news once again. This is when he fell 30 feet from a tree while putting up a swing for his children. He suffered a fracture in his back and a broken leg, but he did recover. Sadly, on January 16th of 1989, George Tweed lost control of his car while driving near Smith River in California. He hit a power pole and was killed. He was 86 years old. Useless, useful, 
I'll leave that for you to decide. And now, a few words from our retro sponsor. For refreshment while you work, for enjoyment anytime, chew a stick of Wrigley Spearmint Gum. When your mouth feels dry, when you're warm or tired, Wrigley Spearmint is really refreshing. A lively, full-bodied, real mint flavor cools your mouth, moistens your throat, freshens your taste. And the chewing itself gives you a little lift, helps you feel your best and do your best. So for chewing enjoyment plus pleasant refreshment, chew delicious Wrigley Spearmint Gum. That commercial for Wrigley Spearmint Gum is from the July 30th, 1950 broadcast of Romance. This particular episode was titled The Token. Wrigley Spearmint is currently Wrigley's second oldest brand of gum after Juicy Fruit. And no, that's not the answer to today's question of the day. The product was first launched in 1893, so you know it's been around quite a long time. Wrigley's pulled their Juicy Fruit, Double Mint, and Spearmint gums off the consumer market during World War II, and that's because they didn't have enough to meet demand. They only had enough for troops that were stationed around the world. Once the war ended, Spearmint was the first flavor to be reintroduced in 1946. The William Wrigley Jr. Company began back in 1891, but it was not as a gum manufacturer. He originally worked for his dad selling Wrigley scouring soap. As his sales incentive, he gave away free baking powder, which proved to be more popular than the soap that it was promoting. So he decided to give up on soap and he started his own business selling baking powder. Once again, he needed a freebie to promote his product, so he opted to include two packs of gum in each can of baking powder. And, as you probably guessed, the free gum was more popular than the baking powder. That's when he decided to go into the gum business, his first brand being Wrigley's Vassar Peppermint Gum. Yes, that's the answer to today's question of the day, Vassar, which he named after the Women's College of the same name, and the gum was marketed solely to women. This was followed by Lotta Gum, L-O-T-T-A, Lotta Gum, which was intended for children and men. Both of these gums were originally made for Wrigley by the Zeno Company, but it didn't take long before Wrigley started experimenting with his own formulations and came up with the spearmint and juicy fruit flavors. And the rest is gum history. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. Since April 15th, which is tax day here in the United States, just passed, I thought I would start with this story dated February 17th of 1953, where it was reported that the Richmond, Virginia branch of the Internal Revenue Service, a.k.a. the IRS, had received an envelope with $323 inside. Also included was a note that said, quote, Here is some more money. Please add it to my account. Sincerely, XYZ. But the IRS had no clue who XYZ was, nor were the proper tax forms filled out. To complicate matters, XYZ had sent in $410 the previous year and $826 the year prior to that. The money was placed in a special account pending identification. Our next tidbit appeared in the news on June 26 of 1960. It was reported that 18-year-old Janet Thomas was in the hospital recovering from a bullet wound. How she received this injury borders on the bizarre. 
Now, I rarely ever do this, but I need to read word for word from the article for you to fully appreciate how this happened. Quote, a porcupine fell out of a tree, scaring her horse. The horse reared, throwing her. She dropped her rifle. The horse stepped on it, and the rifle shot her in the leg. So I guess she's the only woman who can claim that a porcupine indirectly shot her. And our last story for today is from May 21st of 1966. That's when a judge dismissed a charge of indecent exposure against 21-year-old Mary Lou Hood. She was a student at Central State College, which is now called the University of Central Oklahoma. So what did she supposedly do wrong? Mary Lou had mowed her lawn in a two-piece bathing suit. A non-denominational preacher named Jack L. Smith witnessed this, and he filed the complaint. He claimed that the bikini was, quote, disgusting, and that her swimwear, I mean uh, mowing wear, was a bit too skimpy. The judge ruled that while Mary Lou may have made a poor choice in choosing her outfit, he could find no law that she had broken. Mary Lou had offered to model the swimwear in court, but the judge respectfully declined. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the ghost of Guam, as well as all the supporting stories that went with it. If you would like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Additional resources, including scans of some of the original research documents, additional comments that I have on the podcast, and related links can be found on my Facebook page, which is located at facebook.com slash uselessinformationpodcast. That's all one word, uselessinformationpodcast. If for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. You can also visit my website, uselessinformation.org, but I really don't maintain that much anymore. In fact, I haven't updated in a couple of years. The Facebook page, of course, uh, contains a link to contact me also. Lastly, I just want to let you know that uh, I have lots and lots of inventions. Some of you may have noticed that on the back covers of my books, but I've never done anything with them. I usually invent something and I throw it in a box and forget about it. But I've been working on one for about six years on and off now. And I'll be revealing it to the world at SuperZoo, which is a trade show, a pet trade show in Las Vegas during the week of July 21st to the 26th. And I can't tell you much about it right now other than it's going to be called the Expandable Universe. And it's a product that is mostly aimed at pet birds, reptiles, and small mammals. And it's unlike anything that's ever been sold for them before. 
I have to tell you, it's both exciting and terrifying at the same exact time. Um, but as it moves along, I'll let you know more and I'll keep in suspense until then. Anyway, thanks for listening and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.